This is the Lightning Junkies Podcast with your host, Chaz Cryptoson. On this electrifying episode of the podcast, we have Shinobi telling us why lightning sucks and why no one should use it. Trolling titles aside, I think you're really going to like this episode. This is part one of two of my Skeptical of Lightning series. I feel like it's very important to be intellectually honest about the things that I believe in and I fight for, and I definitely feel like heavily paying attention to the flaws and arguments against lightning is very useful. I noticed at the lightning conference this was a very common thing amongst the people there as well. In this episode, I ask Shinobi about different arguments against lightning, some arguments in favor of lightning, and we even get into the topic of lightning network darknet markets. Before we jump into the episode, I just want to give a quick reminder about my crowdfunding campaign meant to keep this podcast alive. You can find that at crowdfund.lightningjunkies.net. Check the show notes for other ways to support the podcast including Tipping.me, BottlePay, Ellencast. As well, soon I should have my WooCommerce store online, so you can purchase my stickers on there in order to support the podcast as well. Insert a bad pun about lightning strikes here, and let's go ahead and jump into this episode. to go ahead and welcome Shinobi to the Lightning Junkies podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me, Chaz. Uh, yeah, I'm actually really excited uh, that you got this started because, you know, that there was nothing out there that's just Lightning. That was pretty much the reason why I wanted to jump into this at all. You know, I had gotten my uh, microphone last year, uh, sat around for another 12 months thinking, um, what the hell should I do with this damn thing? And then I realized, hey, I really like lightning. I'm the only asshole that seems to, well, not the only asshole, but one of the few assholes out here that, you know, could just throw up a podcast really fast, have a lot of time. So why not do it? I mean, that's how everything gets started, I believe, at the beginning. (laughs) All right. You know, I'm probably most familiar with you by your Twitter account. You know, I like I was telling you before we started recording, um, I've listened to like maybe one full episode of Block Digest, so I don't know too much about you. Do you want to give a bit of a, a non-Bitcoin background or a pre-Bitcoin background so maybe listeners can have a general idea of where you're coming from here? Uh, I was a wage cuck that found Bitcoin, uh, did all right with that, and started teaching himself everything uh, the, the, that I could about it all. I mean, it's, it's really the, the meat of it. So how did you find bitcoin it's like when was the uh the moment and how how did it uh, bring you over to the uh the dark side here well i first saw something about it in 2011 with the slash dot article and immediately went this is the most idiotic thing i've ever heard of in my entire life and dismissed it and then a, uh, a buddy of mine actually brought it back up again in 2013 around the time we were flying up to the uh, 1100 top with mount gox and you know i started looking more into it like oh that's alive and worth money and you know just kind of fell into the rabbit hole from there got it what did the rabbit hole for you end up looking like for me you know i I jumped into mining trading all that good stuff what did yours look like from the outside like i'm not i'm not gonna lie it was just wow i have a chance to make a fuck ton of money here uh so i just started buying into it Uh, i think around 800 was 
where I first started and then the whole way down to the bottom. And I literally around there um, pretty much just went on Reddit, found a random guy, uh, bought a bunch of Antminer S1s because the place I was living had electricity included in the bill, did not use an escrow, um, thankfully did not get ripped off, and hit fiat and Bitcoin denominated ROI on the S1s and let them run a little while longer. And that's pretty much the only reason I'm still here. Like I, I literally had a drunken night where I was completely shit faced and swept all my paper wallets to circle and was about to sell right at the bottom. And at the last minute, just changed my mind and said, fuck it and dumped my whole bank account into Bitcoin and then pulled everything out again. And like that, if that was literally one binary choice, there's no way I, I would be in this space to the degree I am if I had made the other choice. Interesting. Uh, I wonder how many other people were sitting there at the, the bottom thinking like very similar things. So were you kind of, you know, what was your thought process there? Were you thinking that this thing is a piece of shit and is not going anywhere? I, I wasn't really thinking beyond my money and got the it. investment. Like that, that's like I, I got the the way the technology worked in the sense that somebody rambling about blockchain uh, gets the technology, but I was just thinking the fucking money. Like I, I lost a quarter of my money, barely like scraped it all back in fiat terms mining. And then it was just like, is this going to drop again? And I'm just going to fuck myself when I have a chance to get my money out. Does, does this kind of mindset uh, pop up anymore or are you kind of pretty much uh, inside of Bitcoin and not coming back out in again? Uh, I'm definitely not leaving this space like this to me is the seed of the next American revolution. Like this, like people love to say Bitcoin is not a political thing. I think that's the most naive statement in the world. Like it, the technology itself may be political neut- or politically neutral, but all technology is. But the, what it will do is absolutely political. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think it's kind of absurd to think it's not a tool of uh, political upheaval or something like that. You know, you had you kind of had this low point where you almost sold, you know, you did some mining. Do you think that you kind of focus less on the price and less on the money portion going forward? Or has it stayed kind of primarily about the money portion? You always have to consider your bills and keeping a roof over your head and shit. But sure. like it's, I am absolutely just like down a rabbit hole thinking about how the technology will play out how the the politics will play out like all all day like i it's it's like you've written a a normal psychologist who is a no coiner would look at me and say that i have an insanely unhealthy obsessive behavior right you might even call yourself a uh, junkie as it were ha ha yeah Uh, yeah (laughs) So we'll, we'll kind of come back to Bitcoin and kind of do a deeper dive on that, I think. But I was curious to know if you've had much time to play around with Lightning very much. I mean, I've not really tinkered around with uh, running a full or a routing node or anything, but I've used all of the, the mobile wallets uh, pretty regularly. You know, I think I think there's a long way to go there, but I think, you know, things have come a, a very long way. Like it's... 
compared to when it first uh, went live, like I was having failure to routes all the time. Like it's it's a rare occurrence now. Like you, you just the experience is something you can viscerally tell has materially improved since the outset. Yeah, I would definitely agree. Uh, there was someone on Twitter that was creating uh, some FUD and the it was like they had found a, uh, a picture from the Lightning Conference where they were selling beers for 400 sets saying, you know what, you guys only priced them this low just so you, you could ensure that routing would go through. Um, citing an article from The Block from June of last year. It seems a bit absurd to think that routing hasn't improved in like 18 months or 16 months or something. Along those same lines, you know, do you think there's any real challenges that Lightning kind of faces kind of in the short term in your eyes? Yeah, I mean, uh, a bunch. Like routing is is going to be a big problem until we actually start introducing new channel constructs, like in terms of like different types of pre-signed transaction formats. So that's absolutely something that's going to be a big issue, especially, you know, another kind of connected issue is receiving money. Like that's, that's going to be a very complicated thing until this advances much more beyond the, the kind of basic uh, design that exists now in implementations, because it's like it, you're, you're effectively talking about a credit relationship. And I mean, you know, people might go now, oh, it's easy to get a inbound capacity. Yeah, but we're effectively still in the this is a toy phase. Like none of the people routing or doing any of these things are making money or doing it to make money. It's because we're all testing things like these businesses who are starting to launch things. I guarantee you that the ones that are profitable and most probably aren't are not making a lot off of it. They're just being forward thinking. Like when that liquidity is something that that's get like people really compete for, it's not going to be that easy to get a channel to receive money. Like it's it's going to be like a credit rating. Like people actually compete for the limited liquidity there, and so that's a big factor going forward. And I think really the only way to solve that is payment processors that batch and then settle things on chain. Got it. So. You were kind of telling me that you listened to my uh, podcast from uh, last week with Ruben. And one of the themes in that particular podcast was how after transaction fees raise that a lot of these kind of smaller or kind of less intelligent business things that are happening in the space will kind of just evaporate. One that I might point out would be the Breeze wallet, how they open inbound liquidity to um, all of their users, a million sats apiece. And that's obviously not scalable and things like that. But do you think it'll kind of you know hit other businesses in the kind of similar way where it'll just make it just unfeasible to do a lot of things that we kind of enjoy now, similar to how Bitcoin underwent that kind of change in 2013 to 2015. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Breeze, I think like, you know, just to be blunt, like I think that's an idiotic model. Um, and I think it should have been obvious it was idiotic from the very beginning. And, you know, there's also the aspect of they front load the channel. So like depending on how that gets done, that there are some potential issues there, but like beyond breeze, it's just like all of this, like, you know, um, bit refills, um, turbo channels, like, is that going to make economic sense when, um, fees start going up? I don't think so. 
you know, and th- there's ways they could take something like that and rebuild it with a different architecture to keep working. But like the, the current implementation, like that goes out the window when fees go up, like the, the premium fee for that would be crazy. All right. Kind of just kind of moving in a little bit further into this, you know, because uh, I think at the top of this episode, I'll let it be clear that this is the, you know, the skeptical of lightning episode part one of two. I'm going to be doing another one next week. Dude, I actually, to interject real quick, I love the the title that's set up on uh, Zymecaster right now for this. I, I think you should stick with that. <laughs> we'll see. It's like, it's, it's a little, it's, it's a little trolly, but maybe, maybe I should go with that. The reason that I wanted to bring you on in particular is that I remember maybe six months ago, maybe less, that you were, you know, kind of raging at people that were, you know, complimenting Lightning and that people are going to use it to trade between exchanges and it's going to be better than Liquid and all these things and get around all the issues like magic and that just enraged you is that right yeah it's 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 the most absurd thing in the world like it's people not thinking through the liquidity dynamics like as long as the lightning network is just two-party bi-directional channels and that's the only type of channel that people can make like that idea is crazy it's like, you know, having a, a channel to an exchange to like top up a lightning wallet you use to spend from regularly, like that type of stuff makes perfect sense. But traders using lightning to interact with the uh, exchange for deposits and withdrawals at scale, that's insane. So do you think there's anything that can be done to kind of address that point? Or is it just kind of intrinsic to how the system works that it's just not feasible? Until we start seeing things like channel factories, maybe, and state chains entering the picture, like, no, it's impossible. It's the liquidity. And like, this is why like I, I lost my shit so hard on this because like nobody is actually thinking this through. When you have a trade, you know, you have one side that loses money and the other side gets money. So if you're all your money on both sides is locked up into a channel, then that's not in the uh, the winning side's custody. You have to actually move that on chain to that and splice it into the, the winning trader's channel. And trading is a very high time preference thing. So mo- most people want their money now. They want it in their control now. And you you lose all of the benefits that exchanges are slowly realizing by batching withdrawals through this. Because you can't like batching works because they condense all the deposits into a small number of UTXOs, and that's what they process withdrawals from. You can't do that when you have a very high time preference like have to splice these in and out of one channel situation, there's no condensing. There's no reducing the amount of inputs involved there. So you completely undo all the efficiencies exchanges have developed in dealing with the main chain, create a whole bunch of new inefficiencies, and then tie them to a very high time preference activity that's going to incentivize spamming the hell out of the chain to do this all the time. Like it's insane. Do you think it's likely in the, in a possible future where like uh, lightning is you know very popular that this is true that the the base chain of Bitcoin is basically all uh, lightning opened and closed transactions? That's kind of sounded like what you were saying at the end there. In the long term, yeah. But the problem here is like this has the potential if all the exchanges start doing this to just eat up all the chain space. 
like like not just lightning in general like it's just all of these traders splicing in and out of channels because they won or lost trades and the exchanges having to do this like regularly because they want control of their money now like it, it's it's the exchanges eating up the the commons of the chain do you think that there's any other kind of claims that people make kind of in the you know i love lightning and it can do everything that you just want to correct as well here i am completely in agreement with page dryja that it like micro payments are nonsensical in the long term on lightning i mean like think about it uh, a payment for a thousandth of a cent it takes just as much data as a payment for ten dollars to route and so eventually you get to a point where like the, the scaling costs and loads to, to really process massive amounts of microtransactions like that, like for the amount of money that it makes them, like it's, that's not going to make sense as a routing node to process that in the long term. And if you try to correct it by actually paying enough to make it worth it, then like you're retarded, you're paying way higher than the actual value of the payment to get the payment where it's going. So like that, that in the long term is just out the window. Like I, I understand trying to like build transitory things or things now, but thinking that's going to remain viable on lightning in the long term, I think is delusional. Do you think long term that there's no micropayments on Bitcoin or lightning? You know, do they happen on a, like a, a theoretical layer three or do they just not happen on Bitcoin or its related things at all? I think people just use things like Xiaomi and eCash servers for that. I mean, they're custodial, but they're completely private. And like, do you, do you really give a shit that there's some counterparty risk on $3 you have for tipping people online? Fair enough. I think we went into some kind of arguments there against Lightning, but I, I still kind of maybe want to go even deeper. Is there a way to steel man the anti-Lightning network argument? You know, do you think there's any other good arguments against Lightning kind of in the future? Really, from my point of view, no. But if you assume the point of view that Lightning is only ever going to involve two-party bi-directional channels, and you're not accounting for the potential to create new different types of channels that can involve different amounts of participants or do different new things, I can see why you you would like make the kind of arguments because you know assuming that yeah routing would tend to centralize it would become really inefficient with liquidity but they're ignoring the fact that we're going to have things like channel factories like state chains like who knows what other types of, of payment channel structures people will come up with in the long term you know we've definitely talked about uh, state chains multiple times here and uh, channel factories and things like that how likely do you think we are to get those kind of technologies anytime in the future is this like a long-term thing do you think you know based on the requirements on the base chain yeah but assuming we get Shinor and taproot and then sig hash no input like they're they're gonna happen i mean why why wouldn't they yeah that uh makes a lot of sense i mean i guess i'm somewhat nervous about uh Schnorr and taproot and all of them being similar to the segwit thing obviously it's not going to be because it doesn't have the the block size thing attached to it but I'm just worried that some, you know, some nonsense is going to pop up and slow it down significantly. Do you have any thoughts on that? I'm not worried about that at all. Like if you really look around, like the, the composition of the market is really changing. 
I mean, like five years ago, the idea that Fidelity, one of the biggest asset managers in the world, would be this deeply involved with Bitcoin would be like you'd be laughed at. But it's true now. And not only is that true, they actually understand what they're doing and how this works and how to make this technology work for them. So like, I'm, I'm not really worried about that kind of nonsense anymore. I think that the, the types of investors that will really drive this market will do their homework. Essentially, what you're saying is a lot of the bigger names in the space are going to end up being more into the Bitcoin ethos than we might naively think. I'm saying that like when it comes to stuff like that, nothing matters except what does the money want? What do the market participants want who can gobble up coins on the side they want if a split were to happen and who can dump the shit out of the other side? Like, and, you know, ultimately big money is what is going to move these markets and people like Fidelity, people like the, the people at Bact, they actually understand this shit. They, they understand why so much of the shitcoin promises are nonsense. They understand the actual potential of something smartly designed like Bitcoin. So I'm not really that worried about that stuff at this point. All right. So let me digress slightly here. So during your jumping into Bitcoin, the rabbit hole, all that, did you ever really get into shitcoins at all? Was it ever like a momentary fascination or anything? Uh, maybe for a little bit, I was interested in some tweaks with consensus mechanisms and other weird stuff. But ultimately, is just either stuff like that is broken or like the aspects of it that aren't like you can like hitch into or build on top of Bitcoin in some better way. So it's, it was, you know, after that is mostly just uh, thank you for extra Bitcoin. Would you say that there's any features of any coins out there that you just generally find interesting that if you could wave a magic wand, you would put it inside of Bitcoin? Some of the privacy technologies, I mean, like Zcash itself is a complete fucking scam. Uh, the, the people involved with it are some of the biggest shade balls in this ecosystem. But the general technology of zero-knowledge proofs, I think, is probably one of the big long-term moonshots in terms of tech that actually might uh, you know, work out and provide some really valuable stuff. Um, you know, some of the, like the concept of smart contracts is a fascinating thing. It's just that most of the people in this space don't actually understand them. They don't understand the limitations of the Oracle requirement. If they are not completely native in all inputs and outputs to whatever blockchain they're on. And the, like, if you look at things like solidity and Ethereum, like it's a, it's a complete shit show, but the, there is, the, the potential, if you recognize those, those limitations regarding things like oracles and try to think more intelligently about a language to do more complicated stuff, there's potential there. It's just you need to tone down the full retard about it. <laughs> Got it. So is there anything that would really address the oracle problem? Like, I'm not an expert on uh, these sorts of things, but I think I remember like Augur being criticized for this quite a bit that in order to decide on any vote within Augur, you know, did 
person A win, did person B win? Like an outside information has to enter. And at that point, it can be, you know, uh, exploited. Is that right? Yeah. Um, like it, like solving the Oracle problem in terms of a completely automated trustless Oracle, that's, it's fucking impossible. Um, you cannot verify with a system using a blockchain things that happen outside of the blockchain that you cannot produce airtight cryptographic proofs of like the a transfer of a coin requires a signature to the public key they're locked to that's an incontrovertible proof the requirement from the outside world was met if you cannot do it to that degree then you have to have some kind of trusted party or parties that fulfill the role of the oracle and i think it's completely irresponsible and disingenuous to try to act like you can do that any other way. Like that's how it works, accept that and do what you can with it. But if you you try to pretend you can have that trustless automated Oracle, you are full of shit and you are a scammer. All right, moving on from there, I suppose. Kind of wanted to hit back on, on Lightning again. This is going to be an all over the place episode here. So we kind of touched on some reasons, I guess, against Lightning a little bit. Do you have anything good to say about Lightning? Do you have, you know, any upsides, you know, good use cases, anything like that? Yeah, I think like if you acknowledge its limitations and look at its upsides, it's the most amazing thing uh, that, that's happened for Bitcoin since Bitcoin was created. You know, and it's it's not, it, you know, part of that, that, that side of my attitude about it, it's in recognizing it for what it truly is. Like you have channels, though those channels are not just lines connecting nodes. They are pre-signed transactions under the control of a multi-sig with a defined amount of participants and a structure to enforce different outcomes. Like you can get as flexible as your imagination can take you as far as within the confines of Bitcoin script in terms of those channel constructs, how they work, their trust models, the, the way that liquidity works when you try to atomically link um, different ones together. And I think the, the, the more you know, different types of channel constructs that, that are created, the more there will be a self-reinforcing synergy between all of them, where the strengths of one different construct, you know, it fills in the weaknesses of another. And when you start to think about it like that, like there is an enormous amount of potential. And the, the more functionality that gets added at that base layer of the Bitcoin scripting system has potentially fractal improvements that can happen in terms of what types of channel constructs can you make now. Do you want to give some examples of, you know, what you're talking about at the end there? Well, you know, like think about it, like right now we have the current design of lightning channels. Like each side has their own set of pre-signed transactions. It's asymmetrical. You know, they have the penalty structure. Okay. That's one channel construct. Now think about channels with L2. You know, there's a, a symmetrical set of transactions. Now both sides have the same two transactions. The, the update mechanism is not the penalty key now. It's something more general. Like L2 can be applied to, you know, any type of transaction format that you can make the incentives work with. 
it's not just limited to these two people and these penalty keys. So like that is a whole different channel construct. And now think about taking L2 and making a channel factory. You now have more than two participants in it. And you can stack these things by taking that first, you know, one level with everybody in it and just extending more transactions of like the, you know, smaller amounts and eventually just put two person like L2 channel transactions at the very end. So like that is a different channel construct. And then like, you know, you, you talked about uh, Ruben in the last episode about state chains. I don't see state chains as its own thing. Like I see that as just a new type of channel in the Lightning Network. And so when you think about it like that, you get a much deeper sense of the, the potential possibilities there. Got it. Um, that's, that's a very interesting way to put it. I really like that. So kind of given that fact, do you see there just being like the most amount of traction from the fact that we're going to have Schnorr, Taproot, TapScript, Mast, and all these things interwoven? And then with channel factories and possibly state chains on top as well, we're going to see some kind of massive scale come out of all that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, just the, the two um, examples off the top of my head, I'm going to steal them from a, um, a talk I gave last month and um, that uh, I will the Free States Blockchain Digital Asset Conference. That is a mouthful. So if you, if you interject state chains into this, like think about all the issues with routing where there's not enough liquidity. Well, now any node that trusts a particular state chain federation can just on the fly, completely off chain, create channels to route payments where there's liquidity gaps. And that can just happen like snap right after you find out there's a liquidity gap, it gets filled in and your payment gets routed. So like the, the synergy of that different channel construct with just the, the two person one we have now solves a massive problem that exists with the, the, the current structure. And then another way you can use state chains is when you're looking at channel factories, there's still an issue there with size because, you know, the more people you have, the more layers of transactions hit chain in the worst case. Like the, the more people have to uh, be online and active to update like lower um, channels in, in that tree. And also um, onboarding people is, is an issue because all of the, or all of them have to put their input in a transaction to create the channel factory. And, you know, there's even like policy and consensus rules that ultimately limit the size a transaction can be. So that poses a limit. So what happens if you start a state chain with like the, the total amount of money everybody wants in there, build a channel factory on top of that, you know, everybody comes into the channel factory and the state chain completely off chain. And then everybody just makes one transaction with one input and one output to close the state chain. And now everybody is in a channel factory without the, the, having to trust the Federation anymore. And all it took was that little period of trust and that one transaction with one input and one output. So from my naive ears, 
I'm getting the impression that each of these layers in the way that you kind of laid it out would give us, I'm not sure if exponential is necessarily accurate, but it almost sounds exponential. But do you think this really addresses a lot of the scaling, you know, I'll just call it FUD from the last couple of years. Do you think this really kind of puts that to sleep? Yeah. I mean, this is why my attitude is like completely non-ironically, we are never raising the block size ever again. It's not happening. Like I've laughed in people's faces when they said that. And I actually want to make them smaller as, you know, these improvements and second layers get better so that we can do things like just broadcast blocks over radio if we can take it that crazy far. Because then good luck shutting Bitcoin down. Kind of intrigued that the idea of, uh, you know, transmitting blocks over over the radio there. Okay, so I guess I've kind of avoided touching the small block thing just because I'm just like, I, I can't even really grok these arguments. So here, please tell me why the idea of smaller blocks makes sense. I want to kind of extend your kind of argument a bit because I want to kind of hear more of uh, the meat of that. Well, when you take into account like the, the potential, like, insane efficiency improvements in second layers you know we were just talking about you cannot broadcast blocks over radio right now like they're just massive like even a 300 kilobyte block i think takes something like 30 minutes to broadcast over um, long enough range radio frequencies so like that's that's no that doesn't cut it like you will never catch up to the chain if you're mining like you're never going to get a block into the chain that doesn't work so we have to dread like even like luke's proposal of 300 kilobytes if you want the bitcoin network literally broadcasting on radio everywhere it needs to go down like you know another order of magnitude or two from there to actually make that that possible where miners can mine over it, people's nodes can actually stay at the, the tip of the chain. And, you know, think about it. If, if that's how Bitcoin worked, like you literally could not shut that shit down unless you just jammed the radio everywhere in the whole world. And if you try, like, tried to do that, like you cause all kinds of systemic problems for society in general. And then if you want to try and hunt people down, they can get mobile. And like, where are you going to get all the men to hunt down everybody broadcasting everything? And that doesn't get you all the people just receiving. Okay, so before we get into that tail end portion here, I just want to be clear. How small of blocks do you think we're talking about right now? under 100 kilobytes probably tens of kilobytes if if we could do that kind of blowing my mind right now i guess i've never heard this particular argument before okay so we're talking you know 25 kilobytes here maybe on average or something yeah i mean if we if we can be efficient enough with moving between second layers why not i guess i don't have a good retort really but okay so do you think you could, you know, because maybe I'm not doing a great job here of giving you a counter argument. Do you think that there's a good Steelman argument ag- against that at all? Or do you think all the, the cards are on the smaller block side? Well, I mean, obviously, if like all the, the types of things I'm talking about with lightning never happen or like huge fundamental problems are found with them or we don't get certain things forked into Bitcoin, then yeah, that, that argument would unravel really quickly. But, you know, assuming it doesn't go that way, like, why not? Okay, that's fair. 
So, but it just sounds like it kind of requires a lot in the, the process. So do you wait until we get to that kind of second layer future before we would soft fork that in? Well, I mean, it would it, it would be the one of the most difficult changes ever made to Bitcoin. I'll say that right up front. Um, and, you know, any kind of permanent fork, um, I, even I would not be ready to go there until we're, we're pretty much dead certain that like the types of exponential scalability I'm talking about are happening before actually doing a permanent fork or anything. But um, Luke's last um, kind of rabble rousing about a UASF for this had an interesting idea that you could effectively just have a temporary soft fork where it expires. And then that way, in order to make it permanent, like you would either have to take the extra step of permanently forking that in or just kind of regularly renewing the the temporary soft fork. I'm just trying to think of, you know, different perspectives, view this argument. We had Bitcoin Cash, we had BSV, and both of their great innovations was to raise the block size. But do you think that they're going to basically turn to zero on some timeline because the idea of using bigger blocks just does not work overall? Oh, absolutely. Like, it's just, just a matter of time before, like, either... They're just going to slowly fizzle out or through some really shady conniving from the shade balls involved in both of those coins, they will sucker some idiot into building a big high volume thing on it and it'll just explode. Like it's one of those two things. It's a binary outcome. Just to be clear, do you think that there's any probability of them accidentally succeeding? Is that essentially what you're saying at the end there? Yeah, there, there is zero chance of that. Like I, I would actually love if they were able to like like find some big Silicon Valley company like Spotify that has really incompetent idiots in the IT department and actually convince them to like do this crazy store shit on BSV thing because it would be the funniest fucking thing in the world. That company would implode. They would take that network down with them and it would just be the best popcorn dumpster fire ever. Lena, let's kind of talk maybe just about shit coins generally here. I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this, but I'm just going to double check. Do you have a negative opinion of altcoins like Litecoin, Dogecoin, et cetera, like more of the slightly older altcoins? Yeah, these are pointless like things like what 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 do they exist for like all all of their arguments for existing are nonsense memes let me just steel man the possible response to that isn't a lot of what goes on in bitcoin a meme as well well yeah but a that's that's why i prefaced meme with nonsense sure. you know meme is ultimately just an idea and a lot of the the ideas in bitcoin are, are very solid and, and empirically so in a lot of their case um whereas you know, Litecoin as the, the payment coin meme, um, that's nonsense. Um, that, that makes no logical sense if you actually deeply analyze it. And there's absolutely no empirical demonstration of that beyond small anecdotal. Like I use Litecoin to buy this stuff because I go out of my way to for ideological reasons. Just to point out that I had tried the Litecoin Lightning Network just for lulls. You know, let's see how many people are on here. There was handful of people on there you know the bitcoin lightning network is not large in a relative sense but it's much more used and has a lot of people kind of using it maybe for more practical things would you agree with that um if there's only like 10 or 15 nodes on the the litecoin lightning network uh bitcoins is massive sure in comparison to that like that's a joke <laughs>
let's keep going with Bitcoin here because I think I'm kind of enjoying this. Do you have any kind of app do you think that is the 100% needed app for any particular user in the space? Or is it more of a, a kind of Swiss army knife of apps that people need, should use to maybe address the uh, kind of adversarial future that you're kind of uh, talking about? Well, I mean... <sighs> Honestly, like there's no way around like it's it's a Swiss army knife set you need at this point because it's anybody not just doing the the bare bones minimum that 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 just kind of got set as the floor is off doing their own thing. And it's like I I hate that because it's really like the the kind of like, you know, to kind of connect back a little bit to like my whole rant on like what lightning really is and looking at it in terms of like constructs uh for channel types like if that future is to happen we need very tight modular standards across wallets for all kinds of things and like it's we're it's like we're going in the exact opposite direction slowly with with wallets and it's 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 like it's going to be like a herding cats thing because like the the whole space there, it's it's as decentralized as, as anything like that can be. Like there there is no framework for coordination or anything. It's just everybody doing their own thing because this is this is Bitcoin and that's what you do. But that doesn't get rid of the need for the, those tight modular standards. So do you want to maybe kind of give me an example of what what are those standards might be? Well, I mean, um, for one instance, you know, mnemonic seeds, um, that there's like, you know, there's, there's some issues with BIP 39 and then, you know, you have Electrum doing their own thing. And there's, you know, it's, it's, again, there's a little bit, not, not as much in a lot of other areas, but there's a little bit of fragmentation, you know, in terms of, you know, a lot of other stupid shit, you have like BitPay pushing their non-compliant version of BIP70 causing compatibility issues. Um, things like, you know, formats for encoding private keys for important things. And it's all, all these little, you know, niches and gaps where there's problems if a user just tries to jump from one thing to another seamlessly. And that's kind of getting worse when you start looking at, you know, especially privacy tools in the space. And, you know, we're, we're kind of correcting in some ways with the partially signed Bitcoin transaction standard. And like, I, I hope that really starts catching on more. Like, you know, things have kind of drifted a bit in terms of slowly on a course for incompatibility. And that's that's not a good thing. I kind of want to take a small step back, you know, kind of on the same point. But I remember like a long time ago, I watched a video by Andreas that laid out the kind of vision of the adversarial future where you could do all kinds of different things to like avoid uh, government censorship, you know, just transmitting Bitcoin transactions. I touched on a little bit with the radio transmission there. So we have things that are like Gotenna right now that, you know, somewhat address this. I also know that Rodolfo from CoinKite with his uh, kind of privacy products. And I think he was doing a shortwave radio with, I can't remember who. Oh, the, the lightning over radio uh, with Elaine. Yeah, I believe so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was yeah. really cool. So yeah, I feel like there's a lot of these kind of cypherpunk things out there, you know, the blockstream satellite, all that. Do you think things are going to get more adversarial in the future? I mean, like, do you kind of see the price going up and, you know, governments being like, oh shit, we need to take this thing down right now? 
Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think they'll delude themselves by that point in thinking that they can just shut things down, but they will take advantage of the very omnipresent power they have over all of our lives to make it as difficult as possible to use Bitcoin, like really ratchet up the consequences for that. And, you know, that might not happen everywhere in the world, but it's absolutely going to happen in a large swath of the world. And so, I think we need to be prepared for that. Like um, I was just talking on about it on the digest yesterday. Um, the the Loca mesh network uh, for lightning project in Venezuela that's trying to raise money now to sell them commercially. The uh, the little mesh network lightning wallets, like that, we, like shit like that needs to be like solid, refined, available, and just the way people use this stuff. And I mean, even in a place where you don't have that very adversarial like environment globally, it's still a nice thing to have redundant, like solid, um, segmented ways to use this kind of stuff, even if your government isn't, you know, trying to stamp it out because it's just, it's more reliable, more redundant ways to, to handle things. And it's, you know, it's, it's, I just think it's just a better way to do things if it works. Got it. It makes a lot of sense. I guess I've always kind of naturally been into the kind of more adversarial thinking because it's much more fun, to be honest. It seems like the natural way that things should go here. Can you think of any other tools that might be kind of relevant? You know, we kind of already mentioned transaction transmission. Is there anything else to think about? I mean, I guess you also kind of mentioned seeds, but do you think there's anything else out there that's, you know, kind of really important that the, uh, like like a newbie Bitcoiner should think about and uh, put into their toolbox? Well, I want to say look into CoinJoin privacy tools, but I am kind of boycotting the two easiest to use ones right now. Why is that? Let, let's just say that there is, is way too much bias and marketing nonsense dominating um, the conversation between these two about issues with each other's products. And I'm just done using either of them until that shit ends. Um, I, I would say like try and look into join market. Um, I think that the GUI is a lot more solid when you just want to mix your own coins now. You know, that, that's something I actually want to try and um, you know help get moving in a, in a better direction in the near future. So it's a little more easy for people to use because privacy is absolutely one of the most important things in this space. Okay, let's talk about coin joins for a moment, if you don't mind. We don't need to get specific about the the two things you're mentioning. Because I, I remember like a long time ago, uh, before coin joins were really a thing on Bitcoin, we had we had tumblers and things. You know, I, I had, I'd use Silk Road and I would use these things that weren't really anything. I think they were just things that make you feel better sort of thing. But in kind of more recent years, we kind of actually have real coin joins and things like that. Do you think they really add a strong degree of privacy or do people still need to keep really overall good OPSEC, keep their privacy intact? Well, I mean, that depends on what your your threat model is. You know, some people might not care that there's a record at Coinbase that they bought so and so much Bitcoin. They just want to hide their on-chain privacy and wouldn't care if the government was like, prove you still have that or something. But there are some people who would very much not want that record in Coinbase's database and would not comply with the government going, prove you still have these. And so you need to think about the, that kind of first footprint starting point. And, you know, 
depending on where you're at there, uh, just, you know, go forward. And if, you know, you care about privacy to the crazy degree, then, you know, you have to take those first initial steps of not leaving records of you even buying those coins somewhere. Otherwise that exists and you can coin join all day. They'll still know you got those at that point and might come ask about them. So you, you need to think about that. And then the same kind of thing happens on the, the flip side, you know, spending Bitcoin anywhere that you, you ship things to you or supply any kind of identifying information to, it's the same kind of thing on the other side. Like, do you want a record existing out there that you own Bitcoin? You have to think about that. And so like, really, you know, it's, it's those, those two end sides, I'd say users have to really sit and think about first. And aside from that, like just, you know, mix stuff and don't ruin your coin control after mixing by, you know, condensing things again. Do you think that there's any good ways to stay private on using a uh, Lightning wallet or is it even easier to be private using Lightning? Um, in terms of the payment, um, it's absolutely more private by default, but I am kind of furious at this point that Tor is not the default for all of these these light wallets and 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 even the nodes like you you are publicly broadcasting whatever ip is associated with that device whenever you do stuff on lightning your direct channel counterparties get that it, depending on how you interact with the node you're paying get that like it's it's like that's a massive network level privacy leak and so like that is is something i'm kind of angry about there not being a little more motivation to move towards defaults like that. Okay, so you're saying the entire Lightning Network should just be on Tor by default? Well, I mean, not not necessarily the whole network, but there, there should be a default there and, and start working towards, you know, a topology that has a lot of bridges between Tor to the clear net for that. Like if, if you want to run a routing node and handle your security, well, like that IP is not like your home IP address or something like that. That's fine. But like end users defaults should be as private as they possibly can be from the start. And like, that's like something that's really been irritating me since lightning went live. Okay. That's a very good point then. So besides that, do you think that there are any ways to maybe improve privacy on, on lightning? Is there anything that needs to happen besides what you just mentioned, uh, up the privacy and even more? Absolutely. Rendezvous routing um, needs to happen so that both endpoints of a payment do not receive any any data like IP addresses or node IDs. It's just they kind of meet in the middle and then the payment completes. That would be a huge improvement. And then, um, you know, Schnorr adapter signatures. Um, so we can start having um, a breakage between that um, hash lock link across an entire payment route. Um, that needs to happen because there, there is kind of the potential to, you know, if somebody sibled a bunch of nodes in the network using HTLCs, like it's, it's very possible that statistically they could wind up at different points in a single payment and start narrowing the probabilities of like who's involved in that payment. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So talking about lightning a little bit, do you end up spending a lot of your Bitcoin or do you kind of hold on to it more so kind of use it for the future? No, I'm pretty much uh, living off of it. I use the uh, cash card for that, but 
I, I have found when I'm directly buying something with Bitcoin, I, I'm using Lightning a lot more lately. But it, it's easy enough and it, it works well enough. It's it's actually starting to be accepted at a decent amount of places. So I, I can't remember the last time that I made a, a on-chain payment when I'm buying something directly with Bitcoin. Yeah, I think that I would probably have a very similar experience there. That's been true probably for about six months or so for me. So... Do you think that's going to become a more common thing going forward? Yeah, um, I actually I think that's probably going to happen. I mean, I, I don't think that like it's going to be some massive thing where the Lightning Network explodes in size and everybody's using it. But I do think the the people who buy things directly with Bitcoin are, are very much going to start moving over to Lightning um, instead of on-chain pretty quickly. Do you think that there's a lot of people that live that circular life now that, you know, get paid in Bitcoin, spend everything in Bitcoin to the extent that they can, and just kind of keep that circle going to some extent? I mean, honestly, not really. I think that's just uh, the few of us crazies who uh, are okay <laughs> with taking what objectively should be classified as insane risks. <laughs> what are you talking about? This is perfectly sane, sir. Uh, I think so. You know, most <laughs> people would probably disagree with us. <laughs> that might be the case. All right. I think I guess at some point you have to kind of admit that you're you're an insane person if you're just living this life. How can we kind of grow that number then if we have a kind of limited number of quote unquote, true converts to Bitcoin here. How do we get more on board without being shilly or do we let them come to us? I mean, it's really, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, just kind of, you know, making the case to somebody, you know, when the opportunity arises and, you know, little things like that. But it's, it's, it's a waste of time to really evangelize, to get people to adopt it. I mean, it's, it's just going to happen. I mean, my, my entire thesis on this whole thing is like the, the people don't matter right now in the, in the growth phase. What actually drives markets is the amount of money. It, it has nothing to do with the amount of people. And we live in a world with very concentrated wealth at the top right now. It's the big money that's going to drive things. And ultimately, I think most people... They, they, they can't understand this. They, they won't. They, they can't wrap their head around it. They're just going to wind up using whatever is liquid enough and scalable enough for them to use reliably. And it, it's the money that's going to pick that. It, it's not the, the people. Got it. So, I mean, I guess in my experience, you know, I stopped trying to to shill Bitcoin to people when I realized they just do not care. They just kind of look at me with a blank face and be like, okay, great, Chaz, thanks for letting me know. And kind of, you had to kind of get over that point, or at least I had to get over that at some point and just, just want to help Bitcoin be Bitcoin and, you know, do what I can, have a podcast for spread knowledge, et cetera. At one point, no one cared about email because they didn't understand the practical use of it. I'm sure I could imagine there being a time in the future where the same could be said for Bitcoin. What do you see as being, you know, maybe a triggering event for that to, to happen before i answer that real quick i just kind of want to clarify um something you know sure. i think like educating people who've already wound up here is absolutely something people should put their time into i just don't think it's worth the time to try and get people but um triggering event for the transition yes um honestly yes just political instability political and economic instability i think everywhere that the, the the effects of the kind of inflation driven economy we're in start really compounding, people will run to Bitcoin. 
I think anywhere that the political stability starts degrading to the point where you you are uncertain whether your government will respect your property rights tomorrow, people will flee to Bitcoin. Like it's the need for it ultimately is what is gonna gonna drive the the normal people into it. So let's say something like that happens and you know people are drawn into Bitcoin. That seems like a kind of a moment where the the federal government panics and puts some Bitcoin rule into effect. But if a large amount of people are really already into it, would that really be a serviceable thing? Or would we be kind of at another replica of the drug war or something where it's impossible to stomp out? No, I I don't think in the U.S. that's going to happen. I think think the U.S. is far past the point where they can pull off just making this illegal. Like that's just not going to happen. Their, their move that they have left now is just to try to strangle it with regulation, like they're doing, like the IRS is doing with the recent tax clarification, like the, the continuous pushes for crazy, like anal probing level KYC AML shit. Like that's the only play they have because the, the door is closed on the, this has to be illegal. Like you're, you're not selling that to enough people to make it happen. So let's take a different tack here. You know, there's the idea of people using Bitcoin, an idea that I've been kind of floating on the podcast since I guess basically the beginning, I kind of wrote it in the blogs that kind of turned into the podcast. So there's like SparkSwap, that there's a Zaps Olympus thing where people can kind of go from fiat to Bitcoin on Lightning. Do you think that there's a good argument to be made for people to kind of onboard directly onto Lightning and kind of skip over the base chain of Bitcoin completely? Yeah. I mean, if, if your main reason for using Bitcoin is to transact with it, then yeah, like that's absolutely what they should do. And, you know, I, I actually, um, I talked to Jack during um, an interview we did with him on the Digest last month. You know, I think an underappreciated potential there is if you can quickly onboard people to lightning like that, then you can sell that to normies as just an identity fraud protection. And that's something that would be very valuable to normies. Like, absolutely. Do you think that that it's more likely to be lightning that people onboard to first in, you know, maybe the short to medium term here? Yeah, if they're getting Bitcoin to transact with, absolutely. Um, You know, it's kind of just the like, it's there's no identity fraud risk when you pay with Bitcoin. So that's, I think, a huge underappreciated incentive to pay with Bitcoin in the first world. As far as like people investing to like hold on to Bitcoin for a long term, um, I I don't think that's ever going to make sense to just go straight to Lightning. Well, here, let me kind of give you my argument then, because I I kind of use Lightning as my way of like, I don't use Cash App too much anymore. I tend to use SparkSwap more often and I, I move my money around a little bit. But the idea is that when I want to take the money out that I would do a, a submarine swap or a loop out transaction and just put it into a, a Bitcoin UTXO, you know, every so often, whenever it gets to be, you know, a decent amount, a couple hundred dollars, at least. Do you think that there's any any logic there? Or is that just a really convoluted way of doing it? No, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that now. But in the long term, that kind of comes back to like the the issue of getting credit for a, a receiving channel and like that staying open. Um, like how much you can get would be like how many or how big your UTXOs would be. So that might cause fragmentation in the long term. But 
you know, right, right now I don't see anything wrong with it, but in the long term, like we need, we need channel factories and state chains and a lot of other potential things to really start thinking about cold storage on the, the second layer, because ultimately it's going to get to the point where doing that um, is going to get really expensive going on chain. So you need like, like I've played around with the idea in my head of like having a channel factory that's literally just cold storage. Like everybody gets into a channel factory, gets their withdrawal transactions, um, except here you would just have splice out transactions. And so you would just have like the, the fractal web of like everybody has what they need uh, for every combination of like people splicing out in different orders. Um, and then like, that's it. Like you just set it up, you have the one set of transactions and you're done. Like until you want to go somewhere else, like you just hold on to your shit and you're okay. And that's the only thing that channel factory is used for is just like a, a communal cold storage thing so that everybody can share one UTXO. That's a very fascinating idea. I've never thought about the concept of uh, second layer cold storage. Would that technically be cold at that point? Like how would the uh, key storage work? Maybe I'm not getting that part. Well, I mean, yeah, because like the, the key storage um, you can keep completely offline, um, all your withdrawal transactions offline, because the whole idea is the everybody does this one setup phase and then everybody's set. Like everybody can just splice out if they want to without bothering anybody else. And everybody has the massive set of transactions so that they can still splice out for like all the, the possible who spliced out in what order. And so like you, there's no more need for interaction. So everything can just get set up and then be kept completely air gapped. And you could even potentially use hardware devices for this so that you don't even have the initial, this is on a network computer problem. I'm glad you brought that up. Along those same lines, a couple of years ago, all these second layer and you know even, even third layer things that we're kind of talking about more recently were kind of just complete pipe dreams. And in the next couple of years, do you think that we're going to think that we're in some insane place compared to now? Absolutely. Yeah. Like I, I, if, if, if where my head sees like the lightning network going in the long term is accurate, it, it doesn't even make sense to call it the lightning network at the end of the road. Cause that whole thing is a pun on like the, the line uh, that, a, that a payment takes. And it's like, that's not what's going to be going on if we reach the end of, of where my head thinks we're going. So like what call the entire thing Bitcoin? I mean, in my head, I just call it layer two. Ah. Like that, that's, it's just all just layer two. I think I'm, I might be reaching my end here. Do you have any favorite uh, lightning app at all that you actually use or have used in the past? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's all, <laughs> it's all d d just different. Like I wouldn't say I have any favorite, like I, aside from like, obviously I, I think breeze is pretty stupid, but, um, you know, uh, lightning labs wallet is okay. The, the only thing I don't like is that, um, neutrino isn't using a single node somewhere to define the valid chain. I, I do not like any wallet that just blindly follows proof of work. Um, I would like that to change. Um, Eclair is pretty nice. Uh, I'm actually really looking forward to what the, this Phoenix wallet they uh, 
their rolling out looks nice. Um, Electrum, I cannot wait for the official uh, release of that to drop. Like that, I'm really psyched for. But like, it's not anything I would call favorites yet because the, the, this, you know, it's kind of like you know, what was your favorite wallet in 2014? Like all of them suck. Pretty much. Like I, I would argue most wallets today still suck. Those are wallets, but do you have any favorite like user applications that that stand out or do none really stand out for you? I mean, let's just say this this uh, lightning messaging thing that uh, used, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, uh, is working on from Lightning Labs. Um, I'll be watching it as it develops, but I think it's really stupid. <laughs> okay, that's fair. I've definitely heard of people doing this. I think there's even one that came out more recently. There's that. There's the the storm on layer three that uh, Giacomo and Maxim are working on. Do you think that the idea is completely stupid in all its kind of iterations, or is it just that particular one? I think it's stupid to limit the path that a message can take to get somewhere to the same restrictions that the actual payment channels have. Like, I think that's like that's the, the stupid part. Like, if you, if you want to have some kind of monetized encrypted chat thing, like, I'm all for that. I just think, like, why on earth do you have, like, data you're passing around that is not subject to these liquidity constraints of Bitcoin and channels, and you're subjecting it to those constraints. Like, it's why would you do that? Do you think that there's any way to address that? I mean, I, I couldn't lay out how to actually build it or how it would work, but I imagine there is some kind of fuckery you can do with the pre-image release and playing around who releases it and how that works. You, you might be able to have like a, just send something encrypted through a more efficient hop and then it only like, uh, you know, can be decrypted if the payment's received or something like that. But I'd have to sit and think about that for a bit. Okay, that's cool. Is there an app that you would love to create for the Lightning Network? Maybe future Lightning if you want to add in all the magical things we talked about earlier. Uh, I want to see people sell drugs on the Lightning Network. That'd be pretty cool. (laughs) I would agree with that. Essentially, you're saying Lightning Network, Darknet markets. Yeah, I mean, it's like, why not? If you can get the bridges between Tor and the ClearNet incentivized, like do it (laughs) i don't disagree with you i i definitely like silk road when it was around um and it seemed yeah it seemed like the future back then you know i'm sorry like you know you just my my head just went to the place where i can't stop rapidly thinking through a whole idea but um like you know lightning on the dark net like think about it if if you have rendezvous routing and you have amp so that like there's even like a, a single thing is split around and you have Schnorr signatures. So you can't even try to do statistical analysis um, if you have a bunch of Sybil nodes on the network. Then like really, how do you identify which UTXOs are the darknet market? Like how do you ever tr- take the, those payments funneling into them and use that to somehow find their coins on chain? And, and, and flag those. Do you think that there's any other way to do analysis on Lightning as to uh, make it more probable that you could figure someone else out? Because I have I have no idea. I'm asking kind of as, as a genuine noob in that respect. Uh, it's, I know there was, um, I still have to read it, 
Um, I haven't had the time to yet, but um, there is that exploit in uh, the the Sphinx protocol that's used for the onion routing. I think uh, Rusty and Roast Beef were talking about it on Twitter. Um, that that might be something to look into. But as far as like the like really thinking through, you know, the privacy properties of lightning beyond the obvious stuff like that that's a bit out of my wheelhouse like that's over my head that's fair how about we talk about your podcast really fast oh well it's it's um not really just mine sure i i, I have like a spinoff called shy 256 for my uh insane ramblings on my my own it's it's a kind of just like a, a weekly news analysis show i do uh with my buddies rick from uh boulder uh, Janine Rome, um, anybody who's paid attention to the Lightning Conference might know her. She did the talk on journalism um, and Lightning Network. And then um, Nopara from Wasabi Wallet. And it's pretty much like we just have the, the weekly news analysis show. We go over all the big stuff. And then we try to have uh, special editions where we interview guests as often as we can. But uh, it's not as often as I wish we could. Was there any uh, recent episode that's, that you remember really well and might be a good introduction to new listeners? That's actually kind of been a constant thing in the back of my mind is uh, unless you're deep enough in to make sense of the news, uh, it's probably a little highbrow. I, I, I'm trying to kind of take the, the shy 256 uh, spinoff I'm doing by myself to an area that's more accessible to noobs. But like, that's, I think going to be a learning curve for me because I, I'm not the best person to like simplify stuff to the exact right level that I can just make anybody understand what I'm talking about. So yeah, that might not be the, the best thing to, to come for or come to us for at this time. That's fair, but let, let's let's talk more about your podcast a little bit because I find that interesting. I, I managed to not notice that. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about the your shy two fifty six? It's really just like you know, I, I kind of have the freest schedule out of everybody, and always want to ramble about shit. So I just did that, but it's I'm 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 trying to kind of find my way to a balance of like going over th- important stuff at a level that noobs can actually like draw something away from and then just like me ranting about like whatever crazy shit i'm thinking about that week like uh it's like a buddy of mine put it to me as like bitcoin futurism rants or, or something like that honestly i think that's been one of the best parts of this entire podcast where you're kind of laying out the uh the magical bitcoin future i mean it's like you know it, it's it's just like my my head naturally i i get something, I get the gist of it. And then my brain runs a million miles an hour forward as fast as it can. Like there's not a lot of that kind of stuff going on in this space beyond like insane nonsense, trying to validate people scamming you or like, you know, just little niches all over the place. Like everybody's always hyper-focused on like what's right now. And it's like, I, I want to see more people like kind of talk about and just think about the, the real long term, like what's, what's actually going to happen in 10 years, not like, not, not the next year, the next five, or like what might possibly like play out in 10 years. Like what, like let's think through, like what can we actually make happen 10 years from now? 
where where do you see Bitcoin being in uh, 20 years here? In 20 years, it's either not going to exist or it is going to have eaten a large portion of the world in terms of the money people use. And it will probably be a wide spectrum of everything from completely trustless decentralized second layers to just like private encrypted banks. And all of those things will just interoperate between each other. All right. I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast. Do you want to let the listeners know about, you know, how they can find you, your podcast, and then your the other podcast that you happen to be on? Um, it's well, you can just find me at uh, Brian underscore trolls with a Z instead of an S. And then uh, you can find me and uh, everybody else at uh, at block digest. And yeah, I mean, it's really yeah, the only social media presence I have anywhere. All right, man. Uh, I really appreciate you uh, joining me on the podcast. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you having me on, Chad. This was uh, really fun, actually. Um, yeah, it was. Probably going to be uh, pining to, to come back and talk in, in a couple months or something. All right, man. That sounds good. We can talk shit about Lightning more at that point. Boom. That's the 11th episode of the Lightning Junkies podcast in the can. What did you think? Did you learn anything? Was your mind expanded by this colorful exploration into lightning network darknet markets. Despite the trolley title, I really liked this episode. It was really well balanced and very conversational. It's almost guaranteed that Shinobi will return to the show in short order. Don't forget the simple ways that you can support this show. If you want to support the show with Bitcoin, chip in at my crowdfunding campaign, crowdfund.lightningjunkies.net. There are also various ways to tip that are linked in the show notes. Part two of two of the Skeptical of Lightning series will come out next Monday, so stay tuned for that. Please subscribe, rate, and smash that like button or whatever. For now, I will see you on the Lightning Network.